One of the things that comes to us consistently in Solomon's pursuit of the purpose of living in Ecclesiastes is the way in which death renders everything pointless or vain. That is, if there is no accountability, no punishment, no reward, then behaviour finally does not matter. Ultimately, if we become unconscious permanently, knowing nothing ever again, then behaviour is pointless. There is no tomorrow, as they say. One of William Shakespeare's character, Macbeth, summed up the effect of this philosophy on life very famously with these immortal words about life without consequence or future beyond death. The character said, Life is a tale told by an idiot full of wind and fury and signifying nothing. It is, of course, extremely cynical, but logical to think that way if life only consists of what Solomon calls life's events under the sun. Death doesn't just level everybody. It reduces us to unconscious dust and ashes, everything else to meaningless, meaninglessness. Sorry. We have already heard the antidote to that kind of nihilism, which is what that statement from Macbeth was about, nothingism previous sermons and we will hear it again in this book however this evening Solomon ponders some associated thoughts regarding achievement the superiority of wisdom and this question of the impact of death upon life and work and so we are considering the irony of wisdom tonight it's both superior and yet it's futile at the same time so the vanity in the contrast or or comparison of wisdom with folly So at this point the preacher turns to the theme of wisdom and folly in the statement, then I turned myself to consider wisdom, madness and folly. But before he reaches or goes on to his conclusion, he diverges from his theme quickly and gives us some ground for that despair in terms of the difficulty that anyone would have in doing what he had done in searching the difficult matter of the meaning of life out. Verse 12 he said, For what can the man do who succeeds the king only what he has already done? So what does he mean? Well, who could achieve more or spend more time or have more giftedness than the king, this king, in studying this matter of the meaning and purpose of life on earth? As one commentator said, "What What man can come after the king to compete with him in the things that are done. None can ever have the same means of testing what all earthly things can do towards satisfying the soul. Namely, they cannot have worldly wisdom, science, riches, power, longevity, uh, all combined as they were in Solomon. So in a sense he was saying, well, it's all been done and no one could have done it more than I have to test these things, to find sense and meaning in life on earth under the sun. Another way of putting this is the preacher believes that he is the last word on this difficult matter. That no one before him and likely after him could answer the question of the meaning of life better. You know, there are the last there are last words on some other topics in the world. I know of two, I think, to be at least two. Jonathan Edwards the American theologian, his work, A Treatise on Religious Affections, 
is regarded by many as the last word on discerning genuine religious experience from false religious experience. Then the Lutheran pastor, Kurt Koch, his book, Biblical Counseling in the Occult, I think is also the last word on discerning genuine spiritual evil from mental illness and other psychological phenomena. Solomon, too, seems to believe that his work can find no improvement given his personal resources, mind, time and wealth. And that's what he seems to mean by that statement in verse 12. But as to the matter itself, he is, of course, right. Life under the sun, life without God, life for life's sake itself, ends up in despair for the same reason as we will consider at the end of this sermon, namely, death. Look at the philosophers who have tried and considered the outcomes of such non-religious philosophies. I have spoken in previous sermons of these. I have spoken of nihilism, Macbeth's conclusion, in which there is no point in life because everything ends up as nothing and coming to nothing. Atheism is similar. It ends the same way. Epicureanism and hedonism, which I have addressed, the philosophies of pleasure, have short-term purpose but cannot be sustained as a true purpose of life. They are at best only a part of it. Let's take a moment to consider wisdom and folly as subjects so that we can see why the preacher comes up with his conclusions about them. We will consider them under the broad heading of the vanity of wisdom uh, and uh, assuming, uh, assuming, of course, that folly is even more vain and harmfully so. So we're looking at the vanity of wisdom and folly in a comparison. Solomon says this in verse 13, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light exceeds darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Well, what is wisdom first of all? What is wisdom itself? Normally we use the adjective wise to describe the things that people think, say or do. But is wisdom a thing in terms of a noun as opposed to the adjective here? If so, what is wisdom as the thing? And what is folly or foolishness as a thing? Wisdom as a thing is something that a human being can possess and can acquire. The author has spoken of getting wisdom. Or authors have spoken of the getting of wisdom. The Hebrew word is pronounced hokmah. That word has many meanings that include the following. Skill in technical work in Exodus 28.3 or skill in war in Isaiah 10.13. Secondly, there can be skill in operating machines like ships. That is wisdom too from Psalm 107.27. Wisdom can also be in the ability to administrate Deuteronomy 34.9 and Isaiah 29.14. Or fourthly, wisdom can involve a kind of shrewdness as revealed in 1 Kings 5.10. Or fifth, there is prudence in general dealings with people. Deuteronomy 4.6. The broadest definition that most scholars favour is this, that wisdom is an ability. It's the ability to handle reality Competently. So whether we are wise with a tool or with administrative records in speaking or acting in situations, we are handling the reality, our reality, 
And if we do it competently, we are doing it with wisdom. That is wisdom. We know that all wisdom comes from God and that it is a gift of God as is, is made clear in Exodus 35, 6 concerning the, the, uh, those who constructed the, the tabernacle. It can be gained from God. Wisdom can be gained from God. James chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, it has its beginnings, the acquisition of, the becoming of, becoming wise through the fear or more correctly, the awe of God. Wisdom begins with an awe of God. Proverbs 1.7 So when Solomon uses wisdom to search, to test, to analyse, he is using these gifts, or this gift in its various forms, and the powers of reason to understand his subject. That is wisdom. It is a capacity for handling the realities of life in various circumstances Competently. Handling reality competently means handling it safely, productively, helpfully, and beneficially to ourselves and to others. What then is foolishness? Foolishness is to approach the same reality and in a way that you are not able to handle it as you should. And you mishandle it when you should know better. Foolishness then is the mishandling of reality when we should know better. Foolishness applies wholly um, inappropriate and unsuitable actions or speech to reality when we should know better. And that qualification there is important because a child mishandles reality because they don't know better. And they do it all the time, of course deliberately trying to utilise folly or foolishness in handling situations or circumstances is generally something only silly children contemplate. There is a saying that if you get two little boys together, they cancel out each other's brains. They don't have to be little either. Let me give you an example of folly when you should know better. I knew a young man who was breaking up firewood by breaking it across a stump, old branches across a stump. It worked really well until he picked up a very, very green one. He should have known better. He did afterwards. He seemed to have cancelled out his own brain all by himself. He nearly broke his jaw. Sometimes wisdom comes from the experience of folly too. So as I often say to myself, I would much rather learn from others' mistakes than from my own. I would much rather laugh afterward about their folly than my own. So yes, you can see that wisdom is much, much better than folly. The book of the Proverbs was written to put at least a 13-year-old's head on a 13-year-old's shoulders but they learn to behave appropriate to their age and to handle their reality competently for their age. Indeed, as you would know from the Proverbs, the aim of the Proverbs is to put a 35-year-old's head on a 13-year-old's shoulders. And I say 13 because that's when a Jewish boy was declared a man at the age of puberty, as Dr. Nigel Lee used to say, when the beard begins to grow. So here is the conclusion again from verses 13 and 14. I saw that wisdom exceeds folly. 
As light exceeds darkness, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. We would say that the difference is therefore night and day. The word excels in the Hebrew means literally to profit or profits. Wisdom profits a person who possesses and utilizes it, not just when the word hokmah means skill. Wisdom in discernment means to avoid damage and destruction, and that in itself is a kind of passive profit. In contrast, folly is quite often a matter of loss in damage or injury or missed opportunity. Further, in verse 14, there is a contrast in perception or foresight. Wisdom enables a person to foresee the end result of an action, like if you pick up a green sapling and try to break it. Wisdom can extrapolate future consequences from present decisions and actions, like getting that firewood. It is a mark of leaders that they can extrapolate the potential outcome of decisions and actions. And as a result, they can hasten slowly or they don't move at all. Matthew Poole explains, Their eyes are in their proper place, the wise, and therefore they can see, which they could not do if they were out of their head. He has the use of his eyes and reason and sees his way and orders all his affairs and discretion with discretion and foresees and so avoids many dangers and mischiefs. In contrast, the fool is said to walk in darkness, which means he cannot see what is coming. Um, And what he cannot see is often harmful and damaging. We have a saying which captures the difference between the fool and the wise in terms of pursuing actions with or without thought. And it is this, that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. They do not extrapolate into the future the outcome of their actions. When because, often because fools live in the moment and for the folly they are contemplating. As Matthew Poole says of these people, he who walks in darkness manages the affairs, his affairs ignorantly, rashly and foolishly, whereby he shows that his eyes are not in his head but in his heels, as it, ex- as it is expressed at the ends of the earth or if you like, off the, off the target. And so the fool never contemplates a negative outcome because while they're being foolish, um, they cannot see. It is just that they cannot see the trouble coming and think it never happens to them. And this is why fools can never be leaders, because true leaders see ahead, like a chess player, like a snooker player, or any other game involving strategic implications. Fools live in the now, look only to the now, and they do not see what is coming. I mentioned perceptions, but what about wisdom in finances and financial loss? After all, are not a fool and his money easily parted? What about physical harm? What about relationship ruin or damage through foolish behaviour? These are the stuff of fools and the consequences alone should be enough to drive a man or a woman, especially if they suffer from them, to seek wisdom. Our son Daniel has a favourite proverb and it is this one from Proverbs 17.10. A rebuke goes deeper into a wise man than a hundred blows into a fool. In other words, unlike that young man with the firewood, they don't even learn through the pain. 
Solomon was a wise man and not only did he learn by education but he learned by correction as well. Our mistakes bring us blows and the wise learn from the blows if the rebuke does not work. Another proverb which now brings us closer to the wisdom of the gospel and the superiority of wisdom over folly is Proverbs 14.12 and it's repeated in 16.25 and it's a well-known proverb. There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. There are so many ways for the spiritual fool to ruin himself as he walks in darkness of spiritual ignorance. Ignorance about God is and, and what God actually requires of them. They all end up with him or her in the ultimate self-inflicted harm of everlasting punishment and many other this-worldly sorrows before it. So many people do not think through their religious beliefs and when you challenge them they often retreat to the warmth and the comfort of their own personal delusions with no authority, no basis in history, no holy book, just what they want to see to ease their personal fears and to minimise their personal commitments. Concerning the greatest and most beneficial wisdom in the Gospel, Proverbs 14.1 says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The wisdom of knowing and embracing God through Jesus Christ is the ultimate wisdom. It's the ultimate safety from the harm of ignoring and neglecting him, as the parable of the rich fool demonstrated. We will speak more of this later. The preacher could see the difference now between the two approaches of living, and they were, as he said, night and day, in whatever field or sphere of life. However, even that truth, that vital and simple truth, ran up against a wall in the end, in terms of the meaning of life, that its purpose when something else was considered, and that is the reality of death. Wisdom far exceeds folly, but in the end, death can make it futile as well if life is only lived under the sun. So we come to the cause of wisdom's vanity. After extolling the obvious virtues of wisdom over folly and observing the superiority of the life of the wise versus the life of the fool, the preacher is brought back to earth with a thud through the stark realisation of the levelling force of death in these words. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happened to them all. And what is the event? It is the day of our death. George Bernard Shaw says somewhere that death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one will die. I think the American comedian Woody Allen said as he was dying these words, I always knew I had to die, but I had hoped that an exception might be made in my case. His hope was dashed not long after that, of course. He joined the rest of the humanity, uh, whether famous or obscure, in death itself. When I was a student, one of Judy's best friends had a stillborn baby. There was a little girl, her name was Rhiannon. She was delivered perfect. She just looked asleep, but she had gone. I took the funeral as a student. I got through the funeral, and as soon as I finished and went down to the family, I started to cry. It was the only time that that ever happened to me. The pain was enormous for everybody. 
The father went to visit her remains placed in the wall a few months later. After he did, he made this comment to me. He said, there was her little box in the wall, right next to an old man who had lived 72 years. She didn't live one day, and yet they got the same little box. One identical fate for two completely different existences and circumstances. And Solomon makes the same observation here as follows. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it happens to me. Why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is also vanity. The wonderful 19th century German commentators Karl and Dillitz describe it like this. This fate happens to all alike. It is a vanity, rendering all vain, a nullity, levelling down all to nothing, something full of contradiction and irrational. Another experience we have of the eventual futility of life in the face of death without God, and in particular the death of those who do not know God, is the eulogy. An entire life, sometimes nearly of a hundred years, others of 70, 80 and more, and the eulogy lasts perhaps 10 minutes, sometimes with a few reflections, 20 minutes, and then everybody moves on. Everybody moves on, whether wise or fool, success or failure, genius or imbecile, saint or sinner, philanthropist or thief, their death puts them in the same place and in the same apparent condition, as Solomon goes on to say. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that man now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? Exactly as the fool. Well, it's true, of course, is it not? In fact, it's worse than that. Later, Solomon will remind us of the death of beasts. But it's the same as our death. He just takes us down a further peg of de- in, in terms of depression in considering our death in comparison to the beasts. However... We can't end these sermons on that note. We have someone greater than Solomon who has been among us, wiser than the great preacher. Someone who has a different perspective on the wise and the fool, especially at the point of death. Life under the sun leaves people in this leveled condition and and obviously in despair. But Jesus brought life and immortality to to light. So let's reflect on on this... um, Reduction of the wise and the foolish to the same fate in the wake of what Jesus said about death and the wise and the foolish. The moment of death will only appear to be a leveller if we don't consider that there's anything to happen after death. The last words of the famous Jewish atheist named Ernst Bloch were apparently this, I wonder what will happen next. Talk about whistling in the dark. Or was it gallows humour? Yes, death may appear to be a leveller, but actually it's more of a separator. Jesus made this division clear in his parables of the foolish and the wise. Matthew twenty four twenty five, he said this famously, Therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded upon a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was its fall. The division between the wise and the fool is made now, it seems, in terms of men's responses to God's word. But that response is hardened forever at the moment of death when the wise have heeded the warning of Jesus' words and the fools have not. The wise and the fool may appear to have the same fate, even the same resting place of body, boxes in walls, but they do not have the same future. Solomon did not look past death. He stopped there and his conclusion was perfectly logical, even it's depressing. However, Jesus tells us that folly and wisdom have consequences that go far beyond death, the funeral and the grave. I heard an illustration in a sermon more than once, interestingly, from the lips of Western Samoan pastors when I was in touch with them in the 1990s. The story went something like this. A king had a court jester appear before him one day and he was so impressed with the jester that he challenged him to find an even bigger fool than the jester was. So the jester agreed to go and to find this supremely foolish person The jester thought about how he could judge that folly and then for many months after he decided he roamed the country searching for the biggest fool he could possibly find. When he came back to the king and the king asked who it was and why, the jester said, It is you, O king, because I know you have not made any plans for the life to come. The parable of the ten versions illustrates this in Matthew 25, following, one verse 1 following. The parable of the rich fool also illustrates this error in 12, Luke 12, 13-21. Yes, it is true that men die like each other. It is true that they eulogised like each other. It is true that they are buried like each other and forgotten eventually like each other in life under the sun. But it is not so for those who remember their God. The Gospel offers men two ways, two choices, two outcomes, two deaths, and yes, as we all know, two very different kinds of funeral services. One service, that of the fool, is a service, at least, at best, of a deluded false hope. And most of us have been to many of those kinds of funerals. And at worst, it is a funeral of utter despair, and I've been, and I'm sure you've been to some of those too. The other funeral is an extraordinary, unshakable hope and of inexpressible joy. As Matthew Henry reminds us in this quote, the most learned of men who dies as a stranger to Christ Jesus will perish equally with the most ignorant. And what good can commendations on earth do to the body in the grave or the soul in hell? And the spirits of just men made perfect cannot want them. So if this life were all, we might be led to hate our life as it is all vanity and vexation of spirit. Matthew Henry. But this life is not all, is it? The spirits of just or righteous men made perfect tell us that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, life not only goes on, but that the life we just lived has consequence for better or for worse. It is not meaningless. Therefore, as Solomon's greatest son, Jesus said, the wise man is the one who hears his word and does what he says, and his house, his life, will withstand the flood of death. The wisdom of his choice 
will be vindicated the moment that he or she opens their eyes after the death of the body and sees the vision splendid of the city of God. There is no wiser man than him, as time and eternity will surely confirm. Amen. Let's pray.